Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Why should we take Germany's conspiracy coup plot seriously? We'll get into that. And uh, we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini with his weekly report from Washington. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's, uh, well, winding down the uh, political year anyway, and uh, as a result, invariably, the leaders will sit down with members of the media and and talk about what went right, what went wrong, and uh, what can they anticipate uh, coming up in 2023. Uh, But there are still some outstanding issues that uh, Parliament will have to deal with when they finally do get back to work early in the new year. Uh, One of them is uh, about ethics and breaches of ethics. Uh, We know now that a member of the federal cabinet has apologized after the federal ethics commissioner concluded that she broke the rules by awarding a contract to a friend. We're talking about Trade Minister Mary Ng, of course, and, well, she said she takes full responsibility for her actions. At no time was there any intention for anyone to benefit inappropriately. My efforts fell short of my own high personal standard for transparency and accountability, which Canadians have a right to expect from their elected officials. I'm sorry, and it won't happen again. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be the end of it. Obviously, as you might expect in situations like this, the opposition uh, members are calling for her to resign or for the prime minister to fire her. I'm not so sure that's going to happen either. Uh, but uh, there, there is a question of ethics, and uh, there are rules and regulations in place, but are they enforceable? And uh, is there any any sorts of uh, elements of the of the the rules that are in place right now uh, that would deter people from breaking the rules? Uh, we'll start that off as uh, we start our weekly look at uh, Canadian politics uh, with Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again this morning. Oh, okay, we're just pushing some buttons oh, at the other end here. We'll do- oh, there we are. Hey. Okay, we're, we're good to go now. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about ethics and, and uh, political ethics. Uh, now, I know some people, Laurie, may consider that to be an oxymoron, uh, but there are <laughs> rules and regulations. Uh, one of the things I guess we found out about Minister Ng's uh, circumstance particularly is that uh, there are basically, a, there's, there's no penalty for it. I mean, you can be found to be in breach of these ethics and these rules and these guardrails, uh, but so what? What happens then? Right. So, yeah, like there's, there is a Conflict of Interest Act that lays out different things that are expected of ministers uh, and other people, too, in, when they're in these kinds of very powerful political spaces and, and spaces of decision-making. And so, in this case, the rules were not followed. Uh, the minister admits that. But, yeah, there's no, like, okay, so here is your punishment. And so that can leave people feeling like this act has no teeth, right? Like, there are some parts of it that if you violate certain like certain clauses that you get an administrative monetary penalty or call it what's called an amp and that can also be kind of irritating because you've got a minister who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's like here's you know you're getting fined two hundred dollars because you did this like it's not terribly um you know it doesn't leave people with a sense of real consequence or accountability so there's a lot of questions about whether this is the right way really to regulate ethics ultimately it's up to the prime minister. It is up to him to say, look, this, this is a violation that's, that's worthy of some sort of political punishment because what's in the act isn't really a big deal. So that could be through a demotion. That could be through some statement from the prime minister's office where he says how upset he is. And some people will call for her to, re- to resign. The trouble with him is that um, 
most of the ethics violations that have been that have gone through the ethics commissioner's office under this government have been his. And so mm-hmm. he doesn't have a lot of credibility to hold a minister to account for this sort of thing. When did the, the attitude about this change? I, I think you referenced one of these last week. Uh, under Stephen Harper's government, uh, former minister Bev Oda, uh, that's the uh, the $25 glass of orange juice or whatever it was. But, I mean, she upgraded her hotel, hired a, a, a driver to take her over other places, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and Harper fired her. And then there's the Maxime Bernier situation. He was found to have left some very, very confidential and sensitive documents uh, in his girlfriend's apartment. And, and Harper fired him, too. Uh, and that used to be pretty much the way things happen in politics. If, if you were found to be in, in violation of these ethics, uh, you had to go. It's not happening anymore. I agree. And it's interesting when you think about the history of ministerial resignations, there is a sense that there used to be more honor in the system and ministers would fall on their sword and resign when they had done things wrong. And if they didn't offer the resignation, the prime minister would come looking for it just as a way of saying, look, we do have a standard here. And when somebody falls below that standard, we kick them out. But now you see less of that. You, you know, has, has anybody left this government on, you know, in those kinds of ways? Not really, right? There have been people who left. And somebody like Bill Morneau, like that was a bit of a complicated situation, I think, where he may have felt that he was being thrown under the bus for the whole we thing when the prime minister was also involved. And there was complications around whether he and the prime minister agreed on economic policy. And so it sort of seemed like he was going for a whole bunch of reasons. But as far as somebody just saying, yeah, I messed this up. And so I'm going to have to walk so and do my time on the backbench because I need to show that the government has this standard. And if I don't meet the standard, I'm out. I think that it's always what a prime minister, you know, how the prime minister wants to handle it and how he wants to get through this particular thing. And a prime minister may decide, you know what, I'm going to ride it out because I want the minister around the table and I don't want to let to let the minister go about this. But on the other hand, it could be, you know what, the pressure is great enough that I'm going to do it even if I don't want to. I think there's a lot going on here. I mean, the fact that Minister Ng, frankly, is a friend of the Prime Minister. She started out in the PMO before she actually became an MP. She is, you know, I think she's someone who who Trudeau really doesn't want to leave cabinet. Whereas Harper, you know, with respect to all of his ministers, it struck me that he always saw most most of them as, you know, dispensable and replaceable. And so he, I don't think he had the same sense that he wanted, you know, like if a minister, if he let a minister go, I don't think he lost any sleep over it. No, and and uh, to your point, I mean, Bernier and both her and uh, he and Odera, uh had some disagreements with the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Harper at that time. Anyway, uh, and, and and you're right. There's a pattern developing here. Uh, she, uh, in this particular case, uh, is a, a personal friend. Dominic LeBlanc, who's also found to be in breach of this, uh, were boyhood friends. They grew up together. Uh, you know, uh, when you see that, there's the, the accusations of double standard all of a sudden. And, and the, you know, the suggestion is, hey, the rules are there. They should apply to everybody. Well, that's it. And I think when when this is all over, right, like when Trudeau is no longer prime minister, there's going to be a lot written about his time as prime minister and his approach to the job. And some of the rumors are really like he doesn't trust people. He has a hard time with that. And so you see a lot of people around him you know, who who may have whatever credentials they have on their own, but the thing that they all have in common is a kind of personal closeness to him. So we saw someone like, you know, until it all blew up, we saw Jerry Butts be his right hand, and that was his best friend for his whole, you know, pretty much his whole life. Someone mm-hmm. like Dominic LeBlanc used to babysit the prime minister. Jolie, uh, you know, was at McGill with the prime minister. Like, th- there's this kind of sense of personal closeness 
And so then it makes it much harder for him to take a kind of business-like approach to throwing somebody out of cabinet. And it also is just a different equation, right? Like he might think this person is a solid person. They didn't mean to do anything wrong. Like he sees it in kind of personal terms as opposed to just strictly, God, you screwed up this file, and I don't want that to be a stain on the government, so I'm throwing you out to get rid of you. Like I think Harper was more cutthroat about it. There was always a sense that he wasn't particularly close with very many ministers. I think there were some exceptions, like Flaherty. But again, that, that, that was the exception that proved the overall rule that Harper was quite businesslike about all of this stuff. Well, there's always a hierarchy, and you're right. In the Harper administration, there was Flaherty, and uh, well, uh, a couple of people. John Baird comes to mind too. That uh, that Harper seemed to place an awful lot of trust in. Uh, the rest of them, not so much. Uh, let's pivot, if we could, just a second here, I, I, because we're at the end of the year, and that means end of the year interviews. The Prime Minister's uh, done one, I think, with the Canadian press. Uh, uh, was watching on Sunday uh, this past weekend, uh, Laurie, and uh, Andrew Shear was there, uh, pitching the Conservative talking points, uh, and I found that in and of itself. Uh, rather interesting. I thought, well, where's Pierre Prolive? And then I reminded myself, yeah, he doesn't talk to the media. Uh, so I'm, I guess he sent Sheer in there to do the bidding for him in situations like that. But it was the same the same talking points that we've heard from Mr. Polyev anyway. Yes, I, I've, I had the same reaction as you. I thought it was interesting that Sheer was the one who was kind of taking the microphone for the party, party in these last end-of-the-year interviews. I think you're right. Polyev has made a decision about how he's going to re- interact or how he's not going to interact with the mass media, and he's going to, he's going to keep going with that. And I'm, I'm thinking his office, the people around him, the party, must be seeing signs that that approach is working for him. He is trying to rebuild his image, not as the you know, attack dog for the conservatives, but as somebody who is a prime minister. And I don't think he wants to take the risk of putting that through the filter of the media. And he seems to think he doesn't need to. And he's probably right. Like, he's the opposition leader. He's got lots of support. He signed up more people to that party than have ever been signed up to a party in Canadian history. He's got no reason to think that if he speaks, nobody's going to listen. He doesn't need the media to carry his message, so he's not doing it. It's going to be very different, though, and I think it is a risk, when he sort of going to be building a relationship with the media that's fresh in an election campaign where he will need them to cover him. And that's just part of life. And so I'm not sure if that's all going to pan out for him. But getting back to Sheer, I think the other thing that ha- is happening here is that to the extent that there's any concern from some people who are kind of dyed in the wool conservatives, have been in the party a long time, that Polyev is maybe taking the party in the wrong direction, Sheer might be a kind of a kind of vouching system, right? Like a bit of security for them to say, you know what, like, Here's a guy who is leader himself. He's a longtime MP. He's held the speaker's position. He's a kind of, you know, pretty predictable, one foot in front of the other kind of guy. And he supports Polyev. And so it's a bit of a vouching system, I think, for the party, for some parts of the party to say to the others, like, look, this guy is, we're behind this guy. We're behind the leader. We're behind what he's doing. And this circumstance that, that's existing right now uh, is really almost tailor-made for the conservatives, isn't it? I mean, in the past, you know, Key issues have been environmental issues, things of this nature. But it's 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 our it's not just the Canadian economy; it's personal economies. Uh, inflation is impacting just about everybody, and uh, there seems to be a consensus, rightly or wrongly, that well, the Conservatives are better at handling money and handling financial crises than that. Uh, so this is this is or could potentially anyway be a, a, a pretty good card for Paulie Evan, the Conservatives, to play here. Oh, absolutely! Like there, there's a lot of smart politics going on here, and just to kind of. I think that's probably going to be key for the conservatives is to just remember, you know, you can go you can go certain directions and try to grow the party to the right and try to kind of 
get into the kind of grievance um, freedom politics that we've been hearing a lot about. Or you could do a little of that, but then you can also sort of just keep your powder dry because there's a palpable sense of voter fatigue with the Liberals, with Justin Trudeau in particular. There's also, you know, as you say, like the issue of the, the nation's finances, but also of personal finances. And the fact that often when that becomes the issue of the day, voters are looking for a kind of steady hand when it comes to managing money. And oftentimes that, you know, that takes people's minds to the conservatives, even if they don't like the leader all that much. So the key for them is you don't have to, you know, everybody doesn't have to like Polyev. That's no, you know, that's not going to happen. And that's cool. The key for them is to say, this is a reasonable person who you can trust with the nation's economy and to help you get your back, get back on your feet a bit. And so will they be able to find that kind of sweet spot for them that actually gives them enough seats you know, in the next election to form a government. And that's going to be interesting to me. Like, are they going to hit that majority line? If not, who's going to work with them? Is there a certain point where they don't have a majority, but it's such a large plurality that there's a kind of legitimacy to them taking office? How all those machinations are going to play out are going to be fascinating. It sure is. Uh, And as always, uh, Laurie, thank you so much for the time today. I always appreciate our conversations. Have a good week. I do too. You too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Experts say an alleged plot to topple the German government led by a far-right movement had its roots in a murky mixture of post-war grudges, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and anger over recent pandemic restrictions. Does this sound familiar to you? Yeah, it does to me too. ABC's Tom Sufi Burridge says that uh, police detained a self-styled prince, a retired paratrooper, and a Berlin judge believed to be the leaders of the plot. Police raids continuing inside this castle, said to belong to a German aristocrat named by prosecutors as an alleged ringleader in the plot. And the alleged plotters said to be influenced in part by the conspiracy theories of QAnon. So therein lies the problem, because uh, I know when this story first broke a few days ago, some people laughed it off and say, really? You know, look at the people that are involved in this. Uh, but there's a, a lesson to be learned from this, and I, I think we better learn it before things get out of hand, such as they did in January 6th a couple of years ago in Washington. Uh, to talk about this, please to welcome back to the program Marcus Colga. Marcus is the director of disinfowatch.org and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Let's maybe do a little dissecting here about exactly yeah. who these people are and the message that they're getting across, because there are a lot of similarities uh, between, as we saw, what we saw January 6th a couple of years ago in Washington, but I'd even go back last February to Ottawa, uh, yeah. you know, when you look at who's behind this, not necessarily who's there physically, but who's, who's doing the work on this, who's doing the planning on this. Yeah, so I think that uh, you know, you've, you've hit the nail right, right on the head. There's a, the, the toxic roots of all of these movements uh, are sort of found in very much the same place and in, you know, various different, you know, social grievances, conspiracy theories and such. Um, In Germany, um, we saw a real sort of explosion of the sort of uh, conspiracy theorists and such back in, um, you know, March and April of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a movement that started in Germany called Kordenken, which is very much like um, sort of the German version of QAnon. Um, This Kordenken group started aggressively promoting anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination narratives early on. Um, And a lot of these, I mean, they were 
these they were anti lockdown narratives, but they were really anti government narratives, and so they started organizing uh, rallies and such to promote these anti lockdown narratives and such. And then, of course, um, while they were doing this throughout the summer of of twenty twenty, what we saw was the Russian uh, government, the Russian state media, um, really pouring fuel onto these movements. They um, they started uh, promoting them and amplifying them on Russian state media. RT, for example. Um, was was advancing and amplifying these narratives. Uh, and what we saw, of course, was that these na- same narratives sort of started bleeding into other Western democracies. Um, you know, January 6th, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, that was founded on, you know, a lot of these uh, QAnon conspiracies, also the same sort of grievances, not that they were necessarily connected to what was happening in Germany, but they were very similar. And, of course, we saw here in Canada, um, around the same time, maybe a little bit later, similar movements suddenly emerging. It was around uh, the summer of 2020 as well. I was specifically keeping an eye on them with DisinfoWatch, taking a look at their narratives. And these uh, organizations right here in Canada, these, what I wouldn't call them organizations, but groups here in Canada, had very similar narratives. They were anti-lockdown, anti-vax, but also very much anti-government. So that whole sort of the F. Trudeau movement, that was very much part of that. And, um, and uh, certainly we've, we see, we've seen those organizations, those movements grow during the pandemic. And, uh, and they were very much connected with what was happening in Ottawa last February. And we also saw, again, Russia connected to those. Russia, Russian state media was amplifying and legitimizing um, the fringe voices within that uh, the February trucker convoy in Ottawa, um, specifically those voices that were calling for the violent overthrow of our democratically elected government. So there are a, a lot of similarities between uh, what was happening, what's happened in Germany, what happened January 6th in the US, what happened in February and continues to be sort of simmering here in Canada. And it, as you mentioned, I mean, sometimes we laugh it off. I think a lot of Canadians do laugh it off because these um, these movements sound, they're so fringe, they're, they're based on conspiracy theories. But um, the fact is, is that they, they do represent a threat to our democracies, as we saw on January 6th. And, you know, we saw to a limited, more limited degree in Ottawa. And it's, and it's something that we need to be keeping an eye on because these, uh, these movements are not going away and they do pose a very, very serious threat to uh, the stability of our societies and our democracies. Yeah, and and there's a distinction. I know you've made in our past discussions, but I just want to remind our listeners about this. Uh, Nobody is suggesting, for instance, that everybody in in January 6th in Washington was a member of QAnon or the the Proud Boys, nor in Ottawa this past February. But the organizers of of, of the ones, they tap into this. And uh, I think Andrew Coyne uh, was writing about this just the other day in the Globe and Mail. And he says, don't say these people are crazy and insane. He says they are quite sane, and they've been persuaded, though, to believe in some entirely insane things, uh, which I think is an interesting and, and probably very accurate uh, characterization. Uh, you know, let's find a bunch of people that are really, really pissed off at the government, and, and we don't care why, but as long as they're pissed, then, then they'll, they'll listen to what we've got to say. That's right. Yeah, and, and you're, you've, you're entirely accurate with that. So what these, um, what these groups do, often they are opportunists, who seek the most seek out the most polarizing issues in in our society and that's you know it it has been covid uh, elements within you know the government's policies towards um you know curbing the the spread of covid 
Um, those have been the most polarizing issues in our society for the past uh, three years. And so they exploit these these issues. And, you know, again, you know, you mentioned that not everyone is, is crazy. Certainly not. I, I, you know, I think that when we look at the uh, trucker convoys in, in Ottawa, there were people there with legitimate um, concerns. And in, in our democratic country, we have the freedom to express ourselves. And, and they rightly did so. The problem happens when you have these individuals who exploit those grievances for their own partisan gains, um, and and they they advance these conspiracy theories. Uh, they they take advantage of those who are, um, you know, who are who who are emotionally driven um, to participate in those in those uh, in those uh, rallies and, and those protests, and uh, and they pour fuel onto those emotions, and so. Um, you know, uh, again, I, these uh, those protests themselves, January sixth themselves, there were people who were, you know, supposed had legitimate uh, concerns there. But uh, we have to make sure that uh, we don't allow those uh, political partisans to exploit those uh, those grievances. I, I we I think can agree that there's a consensus here that social media was certainly a, a catalyst for this. It didn't start it, uh, but it's yeah. a lot easier to spread things on social media than it was 30 years ago when, uh, you know, somebody really wanted to get a voice. It was very difficult. But, uh, and, and you know, one of the lines that I, we've heard time and time again is, well, do your own research. Check this webpage out, and uh, <laughs> that'll substantiate exactly how we're feeling. But what galls me about this, though, Marcus, uh, are the number of elected officials uh, that tie their wagon to this. And, and whether they believe it or not, uh, you know, and we saw that certainly with Trump and, and guys like Steve Bannon and others. But it's happening yep. on this side of the border, too, where politicians are basically saying, yeah, you know what? That's a constituency I could really tap into. I don't really buy what they're saying, but I'm angry, too, and I'm going to tap into their anger. Right. And again, they're exploiting those grievances uh, for their own partisan gain. I mean, we saw it during the during the lockdown. There were some uh, members of uh, provincial parliament here, right here in Ontario, who were uh, directly amplifying and supporting some of those anti-lockdown and anti-vaccination movements? Um, you know that there was uh, one one gentleman, uh, a member of uh, Ontario Provincial Parliament, Rick Hillier, who uh, or sorry, um, Randy Hillier, Randy Hillier, who yeah. who yeah, Randy Hillier, who was um, who even went on Russian state media and gave interviews there and and suggested to his followers on Twitter that they should be listening to Russian state media because they were the only ones. Uh, promoting the truth that mainstream media here in Canada was was uh, only advancing conspiracies and lying lying to uh, Canadians. So that's you know when you have these uh, these sorts of elected officials who are saying those sorts of things to their supporters, it, it only intensifies the problem. And and they may be doing so uh, you know uh, uh, unknowingly, unwittingly. Um, their intentions may be good um but there are those uh those officials and and partisans who are doing it uh, exploiting these situations for their own partisan gains so you know i think that our elected officials have to be very very careful um uh, and anyone in in our uh, you know political parties whether it's on the on the right or on the left uh we need to make sure and they need to make sure sort of that they're that uh, they're not advancing and amplifying those sorts of conspiracy uh, narratives, because when when they do that, like I said, they're intensifying the problem and and adding to the already uh, deeply polarized society that we've uh, we've found ourselves in after three years of COVID. Well, and that's the challenge, isn't it? Right these days, I mean, even you know, 
before QAnon and the Proud Boys. I mean, there were neo-Nazi groups, there were extremist groups that, that have always been around. They they didn't have the platform that they do now with social media. But uh, if, if they've shown us anything in the last little while, it's 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 much easier now, I guess, because of social media, uh, to weaponize anger and extremism into, well, what we've seen here in almost in Germany, but certainly on January 6th and, and, and in other areas as well. Yeah. Uh, it's it, and, and we don't know how far they, they could go. I mean, you know, as silly as the German plot may sound, uh, they wanted to do this. There were people in Ottawa last February that wanted to overthrow the government and, and get the, you know, the prime minister, well, yeah. first of all, wanted to arrest them and charge them, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if left unchecked, uh, we don't know what could happen here. Well, and, and that's the problem. I mean, things got so far out of hand in Germany. I mean, the fact that we have 23 people who have been arrested, there were 150 locations that were raided by, by German authorities. There, were, uh, there was a former member of German parliament um, who was actually slated to become the country's justice minister. Um, she was a member of uh, uh, the Alternative for, for Deutschland. Uh, this is a far-right party that somehow managed to get seats uh, into German parliament. This isn't just a fringe, necessarily. In Germany, these, there were serious people, members of the police. Uh, there was a, a former uh, special operations member of the, of the armed forces who was part of that group. You know, that's how far things went in, in Germany. You know, I don't think we can dismiss the threat in this country. You know, again, uh, you know, we started off by saying that a lot of Canadians are laughing this off, they, and they are, but we shouldn't be. Because there are extremely uh, intelligent people who are buying into these conspiracies. And the further we allow that, uh, those sorts of conspiracies to grow, these will allow these movements to grow without checking, without addressing them, um, the greater the threat uh, uh, that grows to, towards our democracy, the stability of our democracy. And uh, like I said, I mean, this is a, a problem that's only growing. Social media is not helping with it. Um, the internet in general allows for these platforms to grow, uh, and we need to take a, a, a you know a serious stab at at uh, addressing this. Right now, we're we're not we're not doing enough to address this polarization that's happening, and certainly not um, countering these foreign uh, foreign governments uh, like Russia, like China, like Iran, who when they see this polarization, add fuel to the fire by uh, by amplifying these narratives uh, through trolls and bots on social media. And through their own state media, so uh, you know there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done, um, and if we don't do, do if we don't uh, address this directly, then uh, you know I think our democracy currently is under threat, but it's only going to get much worse. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Marcus, as always, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Really appreciate the time. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Bill, and happy holidays. And to you too, Marcus Kolga, uh, the director of DisinfoWatch.org and the senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A very, very important day in Washington, D.C., as the uh, January 6th committee will meet uh, later on this afternoon uh, for a couple of hours. Uh, it's a public hearing, but they're going to vote on criminal referrals for Donald Trump. Exactly what are the ramifications and what else might be happening there? Well, to get some details on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. What are we going to hear today? I mean, you, as as you've been reporting over the weekend, uh, it looks like one of the recommendations is going to be that the Department of Justice pursue charges against Donald Trump. Uh, is there any indication at all that there might be others named in that in that regard as well? 
look, there's a real possibility um, that that could happen. Uh, you're right. This is going to be a hearing, not a congressional hearing. It's more of a business hearing where they're going to vote on the formal report that will come out later this week. And then they are likely expected to leak over the weekend, uh, uh, push forward a referral to the Department of Justice for uh, main justice itself to pursue some kind of uh, uh, criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump to include uh, participating in uh, inciting an insurrection. What we don't know is if there are going to be other referrals, uh, whether it's to DOJ or potentially the Ethics Committee inside Congress, for other members of Congress that decided not to listen to subpoenas. There are five Republican members, including House uh, uh, Minority Leader right now, Kevin McCarthy. And the question there is going to be, if they decide to do that, what happens with it? And does that kind of lay a precedent here for in the future? Because we very clearly know Republicans are likely going to use subpoena power on Democrats when they take control. So whatever happens now could dictate maybe what happens in the future. Well, and and this is, I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because this is the, the, the January 6th investigation, but you're right. Uh, the Republicans do take over control of the House uh, in the new year. And they've already indicated that uh, they're going to be slapping subpoenas and, and charges back and forth. Some of them suggesting they're going to impeach Joe Biden, or at least attempt to anyway. Uh, so it, it, this is going to be a tit for tat as opposed to an investigation. It's it's just going to be a rather raucous uh, year coming up in Washington, I would think, Reggie. Yeah, absolutely, especially with whatever the committee ultimately decides to do today. Because, you know, as we said, Republicans are about to take control in a couple of weeks' time when, uh, when Congress comes back at the beginning uh, of January which is why we're seeing things kind of thrown against the wall right now so close up towards the holiday season. But also, this is going to create uh, kind of a background bit of political noise because Department of Justice is not impacted by uh, the fact that Congress is switching over and there is a new congressional term going. If DOJ decides that they're going to move forward with pursuing, if they aren't already, some kind of investigation into the former president or any of these members of Congress, there's really nothing that Republicans can do in the House to stop that from happening, uh, you know, this is just going to be going on in the background and Republicans themselves are going to be trying to figure out what they do. If some of them are caught up in the investigation, how do they move forward with their own subpoena power? What are they going to do to try and shift the focus away from January 6th into what they see as the failings uh, of the Biden administration? This is kind of the, the culmination and end of the kind of democratic era over the last couple of years. It's just going to bleed into now what is the Republican era for the next couple of years. Well, let's let's talk about the ramifications. And, and as you mentioned, we're told the DOJ, the Department of Justice, uh, is is already pursuing a criminal probe of Trump's uh, related actions. Uh, it, it's, I'm just wondering if, if if there's any clarity here as to exactly what they're pursuing. Uh, it, obviously, if it's a DOJ investigation, they have the ability to lay charges. This committee does not have that ability, though, do they? They don't have that ability. They have that ability to refer to potentially have DOJ uh, pursue charges here. So what does this mean? It means that the committee today will be able to make a referral. It doesn't mean an indictment. It sends a political signal to the Department of Justice that accountability uh, needs to be held for what took place on January 6th. But it also puts some political pressure on the Department of Justice. Now, as you mentioned, yes, there is a parallel investigation that's underway right now at Maine Justice uh, looking into uh, what's happened with January 6th. There are hundreds of people uh, that have been charged. There have been some uh, some uh, sentences and convictions 
including for uh, insurrection that have already been handed out. So this could simply be something that DOJ picks up. The special counsel that is already investigating the former president for things having to do with Mar-a-Lago and January 6th has also signaled that there is interest in what the committee uh, has when this report finally comes out. Uh, so again, we don't know what DOJ is going to do. We don't know if they'll pick up these charges. We don't know if it will lead to an indictment. But it is a monumental and historic moment because this is incredibly rare for a former president to be caught up in such political hot water right now, especially when that former president is a current uh, candidate for 2024. Reggie, what are we going to see when that report does come out? Uh, as I say, it's not going to be today, but in a few days. I, I know there was a great deal of anticipation about the Mueller report a few years ago, too, and a great deal of disappointment when they found huge sections of it redacted. Uh, are we going to get the whole story when that report does come out? We are, uh, because remember, in the Mueller report, this was a special counsel that was set up by the Department of Justice. So there were issues uh, around security of certain things that they didn't want released. But also, this was a Republican-held Department of Justice, and they were releasing what they wanted to release. This is a congressional committee, and they have said that they will put everything out on the table with the exception of things that could potentially lead to doxing. So they're not going to put, uh, you know, personal details or addresses or phone numbers. But there are going to be from the, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of witnesses that were spoken to, evidence that was collected, people that were behind closed doors. This is all going to be laid out for the public, but also for the Department of Justice. So everybody will be able to see this at the exact same time. Uh, and this is going to open the door on some of the information that we heard over the last several months with these hearings. And, uh, you know, CBS this morning released some uh, some exclusive audio where they actually heard they had tape from uh, Michael Flynn's deposition where he repeatedly kept taking the fifth. We will find out precisely why he was taking the fifth. Uh, and again, that is something that could play into the hands not only of kind of the public court of opinion, but also the hands of people who potentially pick up these investigations at justice. I know that one of the, as you say, some of the stuff is, has been leaked out. Uh, the panel's report notes that uh, in order to violate the insurrection statute that uh, apparently they're going to recommend he be charged with, uh, they say Trump did not need to express agreement with the rioters, but rather simply needed to provide what, quote unquote, aid and comfort to them, uh, which is an interesting distinction. But uh, uh, people like Schiff and so many others there who are lawyers on that committee uh, would understand that I guess this is to prove that you don't have to stand in front of the podium and say, now go get them. Uh, you just have to get them riled up, I suppose. And, and that's the, the point that they seem to be making here. Yeah, it's, it's the signal that they're sending to DOJ, because, again, this is a this is a congressional committee report. Could, could this lead to anything you know, that leads to a charge? No, that would have to be carried out by prosecutors. But based on the evidence that we've heard, including from people like Cassidy Hutchinson, who were within the kind of inner circle of the Oval Office when she was working for the chief of staff, she made a point of saying during her testimony that Donald Trump was fully aware that there were people in the crowd for the rally at the Ellipse that had weapons with them that were armed. Uh, and this potentially could be, you know, ammunition, for lack of a better word, that the committee might use to say to the Department of Justice, look, this was a sitting president who knew that violence was likely going to occur because uh, he was aware that people had any kind of weapons or he was trying to not have them use magnetometers to walk onto the mall. That could be, um, you know, a bit of a smoking gun for them to say, look, he might not have said go and do this, but he was keenly aware that this was going to happen and then leave that to prosecutors to say, well, look, we can now investigate this because we have something to start rolling with. Do you have any idea about time frame? I mean, if, in fact, they, they do recommend charges, and that seems the likely thing to happen here, 
Uh, and it's up to Merritt Garland then, of course, uh, to, to, uh, whether or not to pursue these. And I, I'd like to think we're going to hear about that uh, sooner than later. But then do they need to investigate the, 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 the charges or can they simply act on the information that was already given during some of this testimony? I think what we'll hear uh, from Department of Justice is that they will take the report. I mean, it's going to be a lengthy report. This is not something that's going to be sifted through over a couple of hours. It's going to need to be digested. There will likely be legal conversations. You know, one would expect that this, if, if DOJ was going to move forward with this, it's not going to be something that's announced, you know, before Christmas or before New Year's. It will likely be sometime in the new year when we hear uh, whatever the decision is. Merrick Garland, not somebody who comes to the podium very often. And when he does, it's usually for a significant event. So I think that people will be looking at the kind of uh, planning calendar for the attorney general to see if and when he decides to come to the podium. Again, it's an investigation that is likely going to take some time, but so too is the back work to figure out whether or not they're going to do this. They don't want to just, you know, on a whim, ultimately say that they're going to carry out a prosecution investigation into the former president. They need to ensure that, you know, the ducks are in a row, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted because there is a lot at stake, both politically uh, and beyond for carrying out this kind of investigation. But they, they're up against the clock here, aren't they, Reggie? I mean, as you say, there's only a few days left uh, in their term here. Uh, a, a couple of them, of course, the two Republicans, uh, Cheney and, and Kurtzinger, are, are they're, they're going to be out. I mean, they did not get reelected. Uh, do they want to hand this off to, de- to the Department of Justice before a, a Republican-led Congress can do any meddling with it? Absolutely, they do. And that will likely happen when it, when this report comes out on Wednesday, it will land in the hands of the Department of Justice as well. That's why they're trying to get this done as quickly as they can before the committee uh, is disbanded. And then in January, we've already heard that Republicans are going to try to open up their own investigation into the investigation to see, you know, if this was all just a quote unquote witch hunt. So if DOJ is able to get their hands, which they will by the end of this week on this document, they will be able to start powering forward. But it won't matter because there is a, a separation of powers here. Congress, you know, Republicans can can complain that DOJ is is investigating if they choose to. DOJ is going to continue to do what they do. There will just be a bit of fear, possibly, within the Republican Party, uh, because some of their members could be caught up in this investigation. This is going to be something to watch today, on Wednesday, and then very well into next year as well. Reggie, you got a, a couple of minutes left. I wanted to get your uh, pr- perspective on a, another key issue that's going on. You mentioned Kevin McCarthy a couple of minutes ago. Uh, he was the minority leader for the Republicans, of course, in the last Congress. Uh, with the majority that they're going to have in January, it was expected, I, especially by him, I suppose, that he was going to be the majority leader. Uh, it, he doesn't have the votes, we're told, within the Republican caucus. Uh Trump weighed in on this over the weekend and basically told everybody to back off and let McCarthy have the job. Does Trump still have that kind of sway within the party to that people will respond and say, well, if, if that's what Donald says, that's what we're going to do? Within some part of the party, yes, uh, there are people who listen and still stand behind the former president and who still kind of echo those comments that 2020 should have been an election that was his. And they still believe, uh, you know, some of them that this is still his uh, election. So there is some some weight uh, behind the words of, of Donald Trump. And if he is telling the kind of further right within the party, look, give Kevin McCarthy a chance here. There is a real you know, chance that this could happen. But this is this is infighting within the party, uh, you know, like Republicans haven't seen for a while here. 
year. And Kevin McCarthy is still vulnerable to not collecting the votes that he needs. You know, Donald Trump's position, his sway is still powerful, but the midterms showed that uh, sometimes it can, you know, not go the way that he was planning. So he can try to push for some of these members of Congress to stand behind Kevin McCarthy. We don't know what that vote is ultimately going to look like. But again, if he says that he can get them to do this and they don't, this could be a further sign for the Republican Party that Donald Trump doesn't hold the sway that he and some of the people in his party think that he still does. Uh, very quickly, though, I, uh, you know, just so people get the, the perspective here, I mean, this report's going to be out this week. Uh, this has to do with January 6th. Uh, the Mar-a-Lago investigation continues. My understanding is uh, the New York State investigation uh, about his finances, about the company, uh, is ongoing. And the state of Georgia is still investigating uh, tr Trump's potential tampering with that election, too. So his, his legal problems are far from over here. Far from over. And this week, before Congress goes away, we could also have the committee that's holding on to his tax returns also decide to leave those in the public hands as well before uh, Republicans take control. So Donald Trump could find himself very quickly backed into a corner here based on investigations and based on track record, whether it's the midterms or his ability to get a Republican speaker nominated put forth by Republicans and not something that Democrats are able to grab a hold of, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks are going to play a pivotal point as to how Donald Trump might move forward over the next year and a bit before the next election. He's the first one in the ring so far. Does that continue? Does his poll numbers, you know, by any chance happen to get any better from where they are right now? That's a wait and see moment. And we should wait and see what happens the day that the speaker is chosen in early January. Exactly. Well, it's going to be a very, very big week in Washington, and we'll be watching for your reporting, of course, on Global National. Reggie, thank you for this. Uh, have a good week. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.